Welcome to the second of our two webinars on the update to part six of the guide to road design, roadside design, safety and barriers. Today we will, we will be going into a bit more detail in some areas such as exposure, likelihood and severity. Also trauma indices on rollover and head on crashes. As you can imagine, the revision of this part was bigger than just a road design task force. And so we looked for some direction from a wider group. The reference group you can see here was made up from members of the road design task force, the Austroads Safety Barrier Assessment Panel, which is ASBAP, and the Road and Roadside Themes Group, which sits under the Road Safety Task Force. Road jurisdictions across Australia and New Zealand were represented together with local government and the consulting industry. The technical working group consisted of myself as the project manager with Dr. Rod Troutbeck, who you will meet shortly as the technical lead. Other members of the working group included, included David Bobberman, who was the road safety and design program manager for Austroads and Richard Fanning, our Victorian jurisdictional representative. There were certainly a number of iterations of the new version of part six, including ongoing reviews by the working group, reviews by members of the original reference group and the traffic management working group before the document eventually ended up with the Austroads board for approval to publish earlier this year. The last edition of part six was published in 2009. It was then Austroads policy to review parts of the guide to road design every five years. So a complete review of, the, of part six commenced in 2015. The Road Design Task Force realised in 2018 when the final draft was received that the new version did not reflect some more recent developments, particularly in the areas of safe system and a rollover crash investigation undertaken by the task force. There was also the ongoing misuse and misunderstanding of the clear zone concept and that the overseas understanding of roadside crash mitigation was changing. This update to part six is the Road Design Task Force response to implementing safe system concepts in this, the safety barrier section of the Guide to Road Design. Safe systems was released as a concept quite a few years ago now. Certainly in the early days, the default reaction to ensure a safe system approach was that continuous barriers were required on, on projects. It soon became very obvious that this was not achievable given the normally constrained budgets provided for capital works and the under-resourced operational and maintenance budgets that most road jurisdictions are working with. So the aim should be to use available funding to achieve a consistent risk across the network rather than assessing the barrier requirements independently on each individual project. Another way of looking at this is that barriers should be installed where they achieve the highest value for money when considering the entire network. All of the issues I have discussed above are relevant no matter whether you are the largest of the state jurisdictions or the smallest of local councils. The hope is that this guide will help you make make you clearer and simpler decisions about safety upgrades across your network. It is important to note that the review was only undertaken on the first three sections of part six. I'll expand a little on this at the end of the webinar. 
This slide shows the relationship of part six with the new version of the guide to road design. You will notice here that part one sets a scene for road design and the new part two will focus on network wide design outcomes in contrast to individual project outcomes. You will also notice a new part seven, new and emerging treatments, which is well underway. I would now like to hand over to Rod Troutbeck, who will lead us through the main part of the webinar. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Peter. The process of evaluating the suitability of roadsides in part six is for a, a risk assessment process. This approach is new. In this webinar, I'm going to describe the background of the process to evaluate risk to the occupants of vehicles that run off the road. The risk-based procedure. This is central to part six. This new procedure enables us to identify where roadside should be treated to reduce risk. We often categorize risk using a two-dimensional matrix, which classifies the probability of event occurring and the consequences from that event, as illustrated by the typical risk matrix shown at the bottom of the screen. In part six, we have extended the concepts to include exposure, likelihood and severity. A risk-based procedure allows us to be more consistent and enables us to use funds more effectively by addressing higher risk sites first. Modeling risk in part six. The modeling of risk of crashes in row sites is not new. Similar models and evaluation techniques have been used since the 1970s. The process in part six is based on the current US procedure Roadside Safety Analysis Program, or RSAP. RSAP was based on a detailed analysis of the data available in the US. It has had some limited validation to the extent it can be. RSAP is a spreadsheet program with an encouragement probability module, a crash prediction module, severity prediction module, and a benefit cost module. These emulate the core concepts of exposure, likelihood, and severity. The part six process also mirrors the concepts in the Austroads document, Safe System Risk Assessment Framework, shown on the screen. However, the approach in part six uses quantitative risk values rather than the qualitative indices in the framework. Risk scores. These are used to quantify risk. A risk score is a product of exposure, the likelihood and the severity of an impact expressed as a trauma index. Exposure is a measure of the frequency of vehicles leaving the traffic lane and encroaching onto the shoulder. Likelihood is a proportion of vehicles that have left the road then collided with a hazard. Likelihood is dependent on the vehicle's speed and the lateral distance to a hazard. The further hazard is from the road, the lower the likelihood, but it never reaches zero. Severity is a measure of the likely outcome from a collision and depends on the hazard type and its dimensions. The diagram down the bottom of the screen shows us the three different elements. The risk score defined above represents a collective or a total risk to the broader community from run off the road crashes. Risk score charts. These are provided throughout the text and grouped together in Appendix D of the guide. I've explained these charts in the first webinar, 
However, a few points about the charts should be repeated here. Multiple charts are presented in a single figure, like this one, with the chart number shown in the top left corner. Traffic volumes are listed along the horizontal axis and repeated for each chart. I presume you will appreciate that the 5,000 mark between the two charts refers to the first chart, and this point is also zero for the second chart. The chart descriptions gives the locality, rural or urban, the terrain, and the traffic operating speed. The legend refers to the offset to continuous background hazards. In other charts, the frequency of isolated hazards is used. We'll get to those in a moment. I'm presuming you are familiar with the aspects of the charts from the first webinar. Isolated and background hazards. Another concept that should be reinforced is the notion of background and isolated hazards. Here are two views. The top one is an urban scene. There's a metal and brick fence on the left side with isolated hazards of trees and traffic light poles closer to the traffic lane. An important aspect of background hazards is that they are continuous. Here the fence is the background hazard. The lower view is a rural scene. There are trees near the hinge point on the left-hand side. They're relatively close to the road on the right-hand side. These can be considered to be isolated hazards. There are trees behind these hazards, and these can be considered to be the background hazards. Don't forget to send in your questions and remember to use a slide number. Now for the background to the procedure. I'll elaborate on how the risk score charts have implemented the concepts and we'll start with exposure. Exposure is an indication of the number of vehicles that would be expected to leave the traffic lanes and move onto the shoulder. In past procedures, the exposure has been called the encroachment frequency and the units are encroachments per kilometer per year. Exposure uses attributes and dimensions that are common to longer lengths of road. Exposure is a function of the geometry of the road, the terrain, the AADT, and the typical vehicle speeds as defined by the road's operating speed. This is the 85th percentile speed and is not the highest speeds recorded. While this could be the design speed, it doesn't need to be. The guide discusses this in section 1.9.5. The evaluation of the exposure is based on the concepts in RSAP version 3 which was documented by Malcolm Ray and his team in 2012. Malcolm Ray has spent a, a lifetime researching roadside safety at universities and private practice in the US, and his work is considered to be both comprehensive and reliable. Base exposure graphs. This graph has exposure in encroachments per kilometre per year on the vertical axis and AADT on the horizontal axis. The graph refers to undivided carriageways, two lane, two lane roads. The RSAP version two relationship was quoted in the latest edition of the AASHTO Roadside Design Guide and in the 2010 edition of part six. Remember, AASHTO is the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. 
which is a similar institution to Osro's. RSAP version 3 is an update of version 2 and includes the latest reanalysis of the Cooper encroachment data. This data is considered to be the best available. RSAP version 3, as did previous models of the encroachment rate, predicts a reduction in the exposure rate for increasing traffic volumes in the mid-range of AADTs. This implies that even doing nothing, roadside safety will improve as traffic flows naturally increase. This may well be the case, but certainly it doesn't help us. The base exposure curve used in the current part six incorporates a level section as shown by the blue line. This eliminates the effect of reducing exposure as AADT increases. The dotted lines are extrapolations of the data where the exposure is assumed to increase with traffic volumes. The risk scores have the same shape as the blue exposure line. This is the same graph with exposure on the vertical axis and AADT on the horizontal axis. The curves represent the base exposure for both divided and undivided roads. The exposure is for each side of each carriageway. So on a divided road, there are four sides for life. The gradient of the lines near the origin is approximately the same. I know that's a little different, but they're approximately the same. It's also close to the value in the Queensland Transport and Main Roads Risk Program. Exposure adjustment factors. This table lists the adjustment factors that can be applied to different road types. The range of values that parameters can have are listed here. These factors are incorporated in the risk score charts by the user selecting the chart with the operating speed and terrain type that best suits the roadside in question. In the risk score charts, the number of lanes was set to one for undivided road and two for divided road. Roads with more lanes have a lower exposure. If your site has more traffic lanes, you could adopt the default values at one or two is appropriate, knowing that you will over predict the risk slightly, or you could look at the approach in Appendix B of the guide. As the risk score charts are based on Appendix B procedure, you can interchange the graphical approach in the body of the guide and the worksheet approach in Appendix B. Roads with narrower lanes have a higher exposure than roads with no wider lanes. Interesting to note, Roads in rolling terrains have a higher exposure than those in mountainous terrain. This relationship is in RSAP version 3, and without further information or better information, this was not changed in part 6. I assume this attribute may be the result of different driver behaviours from mount and mountainous roads as in rolling terrain. Grade and curve correction factors. The graph on the left is for grade factors. The vertical axis is a factor and the horizontal axis is the grade in percent. The graph on the right is a curve radii factors. The vertical axis is a factor again. This time, the horizontal axis is a radius of the horizontal curve. In dip a different part of the graph is used if the hazard is on the inside or outside of the curve. 
These factors are the same as those used in the previous version of part six, and they're also in the RSAP version three. The grade factors in table 1.4 for the graphical technique are derived from values in these figures. The curve factors were included in a combined table in the body of the guide. Curve radii factors are in table 1.3 in the guide. It gives the curve radii factors for tighter horizontal curves, depending on the curve radii, where the hazards on the inside or outside of the curve, the lateral distance to the hazard, and the road's operating speed. There's a lot of parameters in this table. These factors include the information on the previous slide and other effects associated with the likelihood measure. Including exposure in the risk score charts. Two charts are shown on the right-hand side of the slide. These are for rural roads in flat terrain. The exposure slide presented earlier is shown on the insert in the lower left. You can see the shape of the exposure lines is reflected in the shape of the curves in the risk score charts. Peter, do you have any questions at this point? Actually, Rod, I was um, sort of thinking while you're talking about the whole safe system thing, and safe systems would sort of, would suggest that barriers, you know, are required on both sides of the road and often um, up the centre as well. Do you does, does this whole process allow for that? Yes, it does. It does in a couple of ways. The first thing is that you could have a policy, a jurisdictional policy which enables you to say on these roads, that's the protection we're going to provide. That policy then overrides the risk score approach. This would be, um, this, but this whole process, I guess, would be a, a good place for a jurisdiction to start thinking about what that policy should look like, shouldn't it? Correct. What this procedure allows is for jurisdictions to test some of their policies. It allows them to perhaps be a little bit more cautious on where they apply the policy, or might be the fact that they need to be more generous in where they apply the policy. This approach assists in that regard. Yeah, and I think that's important to note that this, that this process isn't going to um, set jurisdictional policy that's up to the jurisdictions themselves. Correct, this is just assist. Now for likelihood. Likelihood is a percentage of errant vehicles that will collide with a hazard in the roadside after encroached onto the shoulder. Likelihood depends on the roadside cross-section and the speed of vehicles on the road. RSAP version three, does not explicitly use a function to describe the likelihood. Rather, it uses 890 trajectories established in the NCHRP project 1722 called Crash Reconstruction Database to predict whether an impact is likely to occur. Part six uses functions to describe the likelihood of vehicles traveling beyond a lateral distance from the edge of the traffic lanes. It accounts for roads with different operating speeds and horizontal curvature. This lateral distance to a hazard includes the road shoulder, whether paved or not. 
measuring lateral distance to hazards. The guide provides a procedure for measuring lateral distances. It depends on the slope of the embankment. It excludes embankments steeper than six to one, but not steeper than four to one. Embankment slopes deeper than four to one are considered to be a hazard in their own right. Drivers are unlikely to regain control after traveling down these embankments. Consequently, the risk of these embankments and beyond are not included in the lateral distance measures. In evaluating roadside risk, it is important to look beyond the property boundary. Simply don't stop at the boundary. Australian likelihood data. The background graph is a reproduction of a figure in the 2006 Ashto Roadside Design Guide. The horizontal axis is the extent of an encroachment. The vertical axis is the percentage of encroachments exceeding the lateral measurement. The data points have been developed from an, from an ARB analysis of incidents on two-lane rural roads. These results coincide almost exactly with the line for divided roads from Ashto. Also, the engineer's manual for RSAP provides the lateral encroachments from 890 reconstructed crashes. Again, there is good alignment with the multi-lane divided road curve. This is all reassuring. The curve for multi-lane divided roads is able to be used, able to be used for all roads. Increased likelihood of corners. If vehicles leave the road at a particular angle on a curve, they will travel further than if they left the, left the straight section of the road under the same circumstances. On roads with shorter radii, vehicles travel further. We previously accounted for this by increasing the clear zone using factors based on curve radii. In part six, we adjust the likelihood function to account for this effect. Likelihood graphs. The horizontal axis is at lateral distance from the road. The vertical axis is the likelihood of vehicles reaching the lateral distance. This graph illustrates the percentage of these vehicles that will collide with a hazard and the lateral distance given that they have encroached onto the roadside. In part six, we increase the percentage of errant vehicles that will impact a hazard given the same lateral distance if the road section has curves with shorter radii. For example, if the lateral distance of the hazard is seven metres, shown by the arrow, then the likelihood will be increased from 32% on straight roads, shown by the red line, to 47% on curves with radii less than 450 metres. The graph shown here is for roads with operating speeds of 110 kilometres per hour. Similar graphs are provided for roads with 70 and 90 kilometres per hour operating speeds. The lateral distance travelled is proportional to the kinetic energy of the vehicle, that is, with the square of the vehicle speed. Curve radii factors for risk or chance. You've seen this table earlier in the presentation. In the graphical approach, the effect of increased likelihood on curves is included in these curve correction factors. It gives a greater risk score factor 
the road segments on the outside of corners, those with shorter radii and with hazards located further from the road. This last item may seem a little odd, but is due to the fact that the curves in the previous slide are closer together for a lateral distance of three meters rather than at six meters. As we said before, these factors included effects associated with likelihood and exposure. Including likelihood in the risk score charts. Likelihood is incorporated with the different lines. Note that the lines are in the same order as in the legend. Likelihood of colliding with a point hazard. In 2010, Sam Doki and Jeremy Woolley studied run off the road crashes. They considered two types of crashes. The first were vehicles drift off the road, shown on the left. The second were drivers have lost control of a yawing vehicle. About one third of the sample were drift off the road incidents. Their mean departure angle was seven degrees. The remaining crashes involving drivers losing control had a mean departure angle of 17 degrees. The average distance over which vehicles leave the road, based on these, these numbers, and collide with a hazard is then 19 metres. Using this information, the expected likelihood of impacts with a single tree is 0.019 times the exposure rate for a continuous line of trees extending over one kilometre. That's 19 over 1,000. Shielding background hazards. The procedure in part six incorporates a concept of isolated hazards shielding background hazards. As vehicles that leave the road in a 19 metre length of roadside and collide with an isolated hazard would have avoided a collision with the background hazard. Isolated hazards shield 19 metres of background hazards. For one isolated hazard, the effect is small, but with isolated hazards closer together, the effect is more significant. It's appreciated that these are simple models, but they enable us to design better roadsides. Risk score charts for isolated hazards. These charts are used for sites with both background and isolated hazards. There have been assumptions made about the location of these hazards. In this case, background hazards have an offset of four meters and isolated hazards are two meters in front of them. This may seem to be limiting. However, the intention is to provide sufficient charts to represent most situations without having too many. Designers should note the procedure is not precise. Designer would only be able to record the risk score to one decimal place using the charts. This is about the level of precision that should be given to these charts and to the procedure. Using the same procedure for both network risk assessment and the project risk assessment, ensures that the relative risk is maintained. By now you might have a few questions. Send them in and don't forget the slide number. Trauma indices were used to describe the impact severity outcomes. In this section, I will discuss how the trauma indices were developed from severity indices used in the past. allocating a severity index to a hazard. 
Severity indices need to account for all crashes, not just the more serious ones. For instance, not all crashes with a tree result in a fatality, although many do. And we need to include an estimation of unreported property damage crashes as well. King Mack and Dean Sicking indicated in 2003 that the development of improved severity indices was too expensive. And as a consequence, they decided to use the severity indices in the older 1996 Ashto Roadside Design Guide, despite their many weaknesses and limitations. This is an indication of the issues trying to develop new severity indices. The severity indices in the previous edition of Part 6 were based on Ashto figures and were founded on limited data and were often only opinions. Malcolm Ray also questioned the subjective nature of these severity indices and points to research by Dean Sicking, who after further research, indicated the severity indices that were used then over-predicted the impact outcomes. Over time, we in Australia and others have adjusted severity indices to include hazard impact surfaces and ground conditions. While they seem to be worthwhile, they appear to give the severity indices a level of precision they do not deserve. In part six, we use trauma indices to describe the likely impact outcomes using information from RSAP version three and a simplified set of existing indices for arrangements. Severity indices. So you, I'm going to go through severity indices and then we'll get across to trauma indices. This table lists the percentage of trauma outcomes from property damage to fatal crashes for impacts with hazards of a particular severity index. This is table 4.8 in the previous edition of part six and was based on trauma outcomes documented in the 1989 edition of the US Roadside Design Guide. Impacts with hazards with a higher severity index are expected to have more injuries and in particular, more severe injuries or deaths. If you read across a row, impacts with a hazard having a severity index of five is expected to result in 15% property damage crashes, 22% where occupants suffered minor injuries, 45% where occupants required medical attention, 10% where occupants were hospitalized and 8% fatal crashes. All impacts with hazards with a severity index of 0.5, second row, second top row, resulted in property damage only. Similarly, impacts with hazards with a severity index of 10 resulted in fatal crashes only. The table links the severity index on the left-hand side with the expected range of crash outcomes. Equivalent fatal crash cost ratio. US research for the Roadside Safety Analysis Program, RSAP, evaluated the risk using equivalent fatal crash cost ratios, or EFCCR. These are the cost of crashes into a hazard divided by the cost of a fatal crash. This table lists a sample of EFCCR values for impacts into a hazard with roads with an operating speed of 65 miles per hour. The values are indicated in the engineer's manual for RSAP version 3. You will note that signs with breakaway supports 
and small wooden signs have an EFCCR value of around 0.003. Similarly, a number of hazards with a similar EFCCR value of 0.03, they have, uh, and the colliding and outcomes of colliding with these hazards are approximately the same. You'll also note that the crash costs associated with collisions with a tree are approximately one thirty of the cost of a fatal crash. This would imply that less than one in 30 impacts with a tree results in a fatal crash. In the development of RSAP version three, Malcolm Ray critically examined data to obtain these EFCCR values. Impact sheets with utility poles were particularly useful as was more know about the impacts from utility maintenance records and from police crash records. More on the equivalent fatal crash cost ratios. This slide is part of the table shown earlier. I've listed only values for severities three, four, and five. The column headed severity index has the same zero to 10 scale. The trauma outcomes for impacts with different hazards are listed in the body of the table. The calculated EFCCR values are based on the right, uh, listed in the right hand column. These values use the cost of different outcomes taken from the Queensland Transport and Main Roads Risk Program. The willingness to pay cost of a fatal crash was $9,077,270, and for property damage only crash, it was $9,775. The information in the previous slide has been extended to all severity indices to give the value shown here. Using this table, the EFCCR values in RSAP version 3 were converted to a severity index. Additional severity indices relating to embankments and water courses and so on from the previous edition of Part 6 were also incorporated after allowing for a different scale. These severity indices were recommended in the first draft of the guides update. Like a portion of FSI crashes, the road design task force wanted the crash outcome related to the number of potential fatal and serious injuries. This aligns with safe system thinking. The table includes data from slide 41, a couple back and has a severity index from one to 10 in the first column. The next two columns is the percentage of crashes that result in vehicle occupants being seriously injured or dying. These give the proportion of FSI crashes, which are listed in the last column. The two entries for a severity index of one or two were a linear, linear interpolation. Impacts with any hazard as a risk of fatal or serious injuries. Trauma indices for roads with an operating speed of 100 kilometers per hour are given by this proportion of FSI crashes. Nielsen crash outcome model. Research by Nielsen and modified by Max Cameron and Rene Elvig demonstrated that injury crashes were proportional to the speed squared that serious injury crashes were portion of speed cubed, and fatal crashes increased with the speed to the power of four. A third power relationship was used to modify the trauma indices for different operating speeds. 
It knows this seems complicated, but each step has kept the relative order of the trauma indices trauma outcomes. Impacts with larger and stiffer hazards would have a larger EFCCR value, a higher severity index and a higher trauma value. The background research report associated with the guide gives further details of the analysis process. Trauma indices for continuous hazards. These are background hazards and include rock cuttings, tree-lined edges, uneven ground with ruts or exposed rocks, embankments, vertical drops, watercourses and V-drains. The indices are listed in Appendix B. Embankment trauma indices. This table is for cut and fill embankments with different slopes and heights. The values have been rationalized and simplified from the severity indices in the previous part six. The values are presented to two significant places in line with their precision. Trauma indices for isolated hazards. These include trees, sign supports, utility poles, traffic signal poles, and so on. Indices for slopes parallel to the road have been included in isolated hazards. Classification of trauma indices. For the graphical process, there has been a classification as significant, less significant, and minor hazards. The significant hazards of a trauma index are over six, and this is the index for impacts with trees. Each classification includes hazards with trauma indices that are within the range shown on the slide. It appreciates the broad classification but it simplifies the process without affecting the outcome significantly. Trauma indices for motorcycles are logically higher. Even impacts with minor hazards can have serious outcomes. On the other hand, indices for trucks are lower. The guide provides limited information for these road users, including severity in the risk score charts. Severity is included by assuming that the isolated hazards and the background hazards are significant ones. If the hazards are classified as less significant, then the risk scores are hard. If the hazards are classified as minor, then you divide the risk score by six. These factors in line with the trauma indices. Trauma indices for barriers. These range from 0.43 to 0.84 for operating speeds of 110 kilometers per hour. The lower value relates to wire road barriers and to more flexible W-beam systems. The higher value relates to stiffer concrete barriers. The outcome of the risk assessment process is the side of a barrier is required. So we use a conservative trauma index of 0.84 for all barrier types. The selection of the type of barrier depends on a range of factors explained in the later sections of the guide yet to be revised. Risk score for barriers. For these charts, the stiffer barrier is continuous and offset one meter from roads with a 70 kilometer per hour operating speed and two meters on other roads. These offsets give conservative values. If the barrier is offset further from the road, then the risk score is reduced. To illustrate the relative risk, I've used the risk score charts four and five. 
The darker brown lines indicate the risk of continuing failures. Roadsides with hazards of various offsets are shown with the other lines. The risk associated with barrier is very low and lower than when the background hazards are nine metres from the traffic lane. Consequently, roadsides are generally safer with a barrier installed. Peter, do you have any comments to make? Rod, I was thinking about the motorcycle trauma. Um, many jurisdictions have very popular motorcycles routes and and when they're trying to mitigate motorcyclist trauma, um, some of them mandate underrun rail on, on their W-beam systems and, and others just target crash sites. Um, do you, given what you've just, just said and, and that the traumas for motorcyclists aren't, aren't covered in this guide particularly, do you have any thoughts on those two methods of addressing motorcyclist trauma? To address motorcycle trauma at present time needs to be, in my mind, by a jurisdictional policy. Either one of those policies is appropriate. We need to understand the risks and understand what we can do about it. Naturally, we want to address those sites where motorcyclists are more likely to have a crash, and we need to look at ways to be able to protect them as far as we can. So, the jurisdictions really have to have a bit of a think about it and understand their uh, their resources, I guess, as to uh, how much money they can they can put in um, to the safety barrier systems on 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 what are generally very uh, windy mountainous roads, I guess. Well, being on on generally mountainous roads, as you suggest, actually limits the sort of barriers that you can use to it to an extent. You're probably having to gain to use a metal barrier and therefore the underrun is likely to be the likely protection but that doesn't mean that it has to be everywhere yes jurisdictions are going to have to have a close look at what we do for motorcyclists they are an important uh, road user group that we should be looking after in fact all those all road user groups should be looked at in the same way yeah and i think that's an important point yeah thanks Rob. This procedure includes the risk of vehicles rolling over on flatter sections of verges and roadsides. Vehicle rollover is proportional to the distance of vehicle travels across a roadside. It is also proportional to the lateral width of the area between the road and hazards. The distance an area of vehicle will travel is affected by its kinetic energy. Accordingly, the likelihood is adjusted by the square of the operating speed. The likelihood in percent is given by the equation 0.592 times F times X, where X is the lateral distance to the area beside the traffic lane that has a slope of six on one or flatter. This includes the shoulder. The speed factor F is shown in the table. The trauma index for rollers is the same as it is for six on one embankments. This is to ensure consistency with the embankment values. A rollover may also occur after colliding with a barrier or a hazard. This hasn't been considered. Rollover risk on embankments. 
The risk of vehicles traversing embankments was based on full-scale tests and simulations, which also predicted vehicle rollovers. However, the notion of vehicles rolling over on a reasonable flat areas was not included, as these were not embankments. The photograph on the left is a full-scale test, showing the trailer can tip before the driver is aware that it's happening. This testing was not part of the research for part six, it's just an interesting photograph. Risk score charts. The first thing you notice is a similar shape of the curves to the exposure curves. You will next see that the lines are equally spaced as the risk increases in proportion to the lateral distance to the hazard. Finally, for typical verge widths, the risk is real but relatively small. These figures are based on available data, and as more information becomes available, the procedure will be updated. The risk of rollovers is added to the risk score for other hazards. Next, the risk of head-on collisions on two-lane rural roads. Fatal and serious injuries from head-on crashes. The New Zealand Transport Agency published this graph. The vertical axis is the number of fatal and serious injuries per, per kilometre over a 10-year period. The horizontal axis is the road's AADT. The relationship of run of the road crashes, shown by the blue line in this figure, has a similar shape to the exposure curve described above. For head-on collisions, shown by the red line, the number of fatal and serious injuries has an exponential relationship although it's close to a straight line. The curve is shown with the number of fatal and serious injuries. The risk score charts, on the other hand, are based on the number of fatal and serious injury crashes. A report by the New Zealand Transport Agency found that for every fatal or serious injury crash in head-on, there were on average 1.6 fatal and serious injuries. So we can divide the crash outcomes by 1.6 to get the number of fatal and serious injury crashes. Similarly, for run-off-the-road events, there were 1.2 times as many fatal and serious injuries as were fatal and serious injury crashes. Now, concentrating on fatal and serious injury crashes, this graph is based on the data and relationships from the New Zealand report. Note that the vertical scale is now fatal and serious injury crashes over a 10 year period. This graph is obtained by applying the ratios described in the previous slide. You will note that the number of fatal and serious injury crashes from head on collisions is equal to those from run off the road collisions when the AADT is approximately 9,000 vehicles per day. Likelihood of head-on crashes. Since we know the exposure for vehicles to have to leave the traffic lane, we can calculate the likelihood that would predict the number of fatal and serious crashes as shown in the previous slide. This results in this figure. Likelihood is on the vertical axis and AADT on the horizontal axis. Severity of head-on crashes. Using the trauma index of 87 to represent the severity of head-on crashes, 
allows the risk for the two roadsides to be equal to the risk of head-on crashes when the AADT is 9,000 vehicles per day. This high value of the trauma events demonstrate that most head-on crashes result in serious injuries or fatalities, as you would expect. The worksheets in Appendix B provide an alternative to estimate risk scores if the charts are not appropriate. I have to say that the graphical techniques puts the emphasis on understanding relationship between variables. Using worksheets might cause some designers to put more emphasis on detail rather than obtaining a broad view of the risk. When to use the worksheets? The graphical process is generally all that is needed for an assessment of risk. The charts represent the precision of the process. You might ask the question, how do I know if the risk score of the site is just above or just below the NIIT value. Well, if the site value is close to the NIIT, maybe you should install a barrier. A worksheet or spreadsheet solution should only be necessary to analyse the risk of head-on crashes when there are more than two lanes on the carriageway, when you need to be more definitive or directive about the requirements for safety improvements, such as allowing the design of a roadside to be more closely controlled. How this is best handled needs to be discussed. Good engineering is not about not only about numbers, but rather designing roads and roadsides that meet community objectives and expectations. A worksheet solution may be used to update risk score charts for other scenarios. These worksheets could be used to to define the NIIT and the risk scores for project or program assessment. The item column is a short form description of the measure. The measures in this slide relate to longer road lengths. The measures in this slide are for particular road segments and would generally be available from plans. These measures define the characteristics and location of background and isolated hazards. Note my comments on the side. Background hazards are continuous. Isolated ones are generally in front, but in some sentences, circumstances, it can be behind the background hazards. I provide an example in the first webinar of a cobalt headwall on an embankment. The information for this part of the worksheet can be obtained from cross-sections, measurements at site, or aerial photographs. This part of the worksheet evaluates exposure in encroachment per kilometer per year. Items T to Y are identified from tables and figures in Appendix B. The exposure is the product of the base exposure, item T, and the five factors. Likelihood. This part of the worksheet calculates the likelihood of impacts with background and isolated hazards. It also incorporates the likelihood of rollover. The base likelihood for, back, for background and isolated hazards assumes that they are continuous. A modification factor in item AB is calculated to give an equation and is used to modify the base likelihood values to give the likelihood in items AC and AE. The likelihood of a rollover is given by the equation in the text. I don't expect you to read all of this now. 
note that the likelihood is given as a percentage and the and in the equations and the figures, but entered into the worksheet as a decimal. Just note my warning at the bottom. Chromerins is evaluated for both isolated and background hazards. Adjustments are made for different operating speeds. The trauma index for a rollover is set by 0, at 0.63. Finally, the risk scores for the background hazards, isolated hazards, and for rollovers are calculated in this part of the worksheet. The risk scores are a product of the appropriate exposure, likelihood, and trauma index. Note the equation in the guide for the risk score for rollovers has a plus sign rather than modification sign. A couple of concluding comments. Risk scores are relative. Changing the severity measure from a severity index to a trauma index is not important. The relative order of risks remain the same. These severity indices are the weakest link. Potential crash outcomes described by the trauma indices will improve with more accurate information. Risk scores are a measure of the risk. For reasonably long sections of road, when looking at an isolated hazard like a culvert, we need to account for its length. Risk scores are normalized. They are the risk if the road conditions existed for one kilometer. Risk score for rollovers on reasonable level areas alongside the road indicate that clear zones can cause rollovers and serious injuries. Although this process is principally based on US research, the process does not consider that providing a clear zone should be a first choice. It is one of many treatments that may be considered. This is not the final word in roadside risk. With the development of the second edition of the US Highway Safety Manual, ANRAN and others, there is now considerable effort in developing greater alignment between risk assessment models and crash modification factors and functions. This research will improve the risk prediction model. And with that, I thank you for your attention. Now back to you, Peter. Thanks, Rod. And thanks to everyone for your insightful questions. You've certainly kept us busy. This was the second of our two webinars on the revision of part six of the Guide to Road Design. If you missed the first webinar, it is still on the Ostroads website and it will give you a good insight into the concept of the network roadside risk intervention threshold and the program or project risk assessment process. So the next steps for the road design task force, which have already commenced, is the revision of the next three sections of part six, specifically looking at treatment options and road safety barrier design process. Thank you.